Amen. Well, good morning, Bridge City Church, North Braddock. Excited to have you here with us on this um, Labor Day weekend. Usually that's the weekend that, you know, everybody likes to take a break from church because it's kind of the end of summer. You want to get your last traveling out. You've got, uh, you, you know, most people have the work day off tomorrow. And so I just want to uh, salute you for spending some of your Sunday morning with us here at Bridge City Church. And before we get into the message, and, and I just want to say this right now, this has been something that's been burning in my heart. Um, this message has been burning in my heart for several weeks, but it's been something that's been really just consuming my heart of late. And I, and I pray that you have ears to hear and, and, and bodies to put into action. What I believe God wants to prophetically say, not just to our campus, but also to our church at large, um, but really to the, the, the church globally. But before we do that, um, somewhere around you on your seat, you should have one of these little, neat little cards laying there. It has a little 40 on the bottom. That's because in two weeks, we're going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary as a church. Come on, somebody. And you're going to hear more about all the amazing things that we have for that weekend of September 17th and September 18th. September 17th is the Saturday where we're all going to be at Kennywood. And if you're like, yo, I want to be at Kennywood, $15 and it's yours, baby. So um, you, you'll hear more about that later on. We're selling tickets to be at Kennywood on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we have two worship experiences here. All four of our campuses are meeting here uh, for the 40th. But this little card that you have here, here's what I'd like you to do. Um, hopefully, you have a pen for taking notes. Now, maybe you're a, a cyber person and you do it in your phone. That's usually what I do or on my tablet. But um, if, if, if you don't have a pen and no one around you has a pen, make sure that you find a pen, hopefully before you leave. And on this card, we would like you to uh, write the answer to one of three questions, one of three questions uh, that'll be up on the screen there. You don't have to answer all of them, but just one of these three. If you would, you don't have to put your name on it or anything, but what's your favorite memory from Bridge City, or if you've been here long enough, Greater Pittsburgh Word and Worship Fellowship or Word and Worship Church, whenever you showed up here, what's your favorite memory or what has God done in your life? here at Bridge City, here at this church? Or how did you end up here? You know, who invited you? How'd you stumble here? But any one of those three questions, if you would just write that down legibly, and then at the end of the worship experience, drop them in either one of the black baskets that we have on either side of the production booth in the center back of the auditorium here. Because what we're going to do is this. We're collecting these at all of our campuses this week and next week. So if you can't get it written down, please be sure to bring it next Sunday, or you can just swing by the office and drop it off during the week. But jot down your answer, because we're going to collect these, and then we're going to put these on a big collage wall down the hallway here. So, so if you would be so kind as to do that, it would be a great, great blessing to us um, to just see how God has moved in your life through this ministry that he started almost 40 years ago. Well, this morning, all of our campuses are preaching what we call standalone messages. And that's basically where we're not in a series. So each of the campus pastors gets an opportunity to really share something that God has on their heart or just kind of a message that's their own. So we're not syncing up in that regard um, this week. But 
we are syncing up. I believe this message syncs with our church because what I want to talk about today is redeeming a generation. Redeeming a generation. Houston, we have a problem. And it's not just in the, the church, but it's in our nation. And I'm a big believer that the earth goes the way of the church. Personally, because I believe that as the church, as followers of Jesus, as the body of Christ in the earth, that we are anointed and appointed individually and even more so collectively to set the tone and tenor and direction of the creation. I believe that. I believe that we are salt in the earth and we are to have an influence on the earth. And so if something isn't happening in the earth, it's probably because it's not happening in the church. And we have a disconnect between our generations. There's a disconnect between the generations. And I'm not just talking about the disconnect between the boomer generation and the millennial generation, or Gen X and Gen Z. That's there and that is real. But there is a disconnect spiritually amongst the generations. And what I mean by that is this, is that we have an entire generation of young Christians, both chronologically young in their age, and, and I'll just set the parameters. If you're 35 and under, you're young. Praise God. Woohoo! Yay. You know? If you're 50 and older, you're old. I'm 45, so I'm neither. Hallelujah. There's, somebody's happy about that. But nevertheless, we have, a, we have a disconnect spiritually within the generations of believers who are young and young believers. There's a difference. Because you can be a believer who's young, a person who came to Christ either as a child in kids' church or Sunday school and VBS, and you're like in your teens or 20s or you know, even your early 30s, and you're still chronologically kind of young, or you can be a young believer in the sense that you're 50 years old, but you've only been following Jesus for two years, and so you're young in the faith. Or you know what? There's some people that I've met that have been saved for 20 years, and they're still mad and mature. Let me just say that. And that's because we have a disconnect within the generations. There's a problem because we have a, a, a generation of younger Christians who aren't being poured into by older, mature Christians. And we have a generation of younger Christians who aren't seeking out godly, wise, mature, biblical people to speak into their life. It's a dichotomy that's causing a tension that is bringing fractures and fissures all throughout our nation, and we've got to fix it here because this is something that's very important to God. And you say, well, why is this important? I've got three reasons before we jump into our text that I believe God wants to show us how we redeem a generation. But the first reason why it's important is this, is because God is a God of generations, God is a God of generations. You know the book of Genesis is called Genesis because it's divided by nine, some scholars say ten, specific phrases that say, and these are the generations of. How about this? God, before he revealed himself to the world as Yahweh the Lord, he was known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's three generations. 
In his law, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the most important scripture to, to, to people of the Jewish faith, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's called the Shema. But in that he says, you are to teach these laws to the next generation. God is a God of generations. And if you don't believe all of that, let's take a look at Psalm chapter 78, verses 1 through 4. This is what it says here. There. Oh, my people. Listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying. This is God speaking through the psalmist. For what, actually, no, this is the psalmist speaking on behalf of God. For what I will speak to you in a parable, I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, right? So everybody that's trying to run away from your past, you're running away from hidden lessons too. You know, the worst things that have happened to you in your past are some of the best lessons you have for your future. But stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. Here's the kicker, verse 4. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and about his mighty wonders. God cares about the next generation because the reality of it is this no matter how old you are you were at one point the next generation none of you got here by yourself but we also see that this is important because this is actually the foundational scripture of our church. 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, this is Paul speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, says the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men, the term there's not gender specific, people, who will be able to teach others also. So I don't know if you caught it there. Paul is the first generation, and he's speaking to the second generation and telling the second generation the things that you've heard from me and the things that you've seen from me, pass them on to the third generation and pass them on in a way that they will be able to pass it on to the fourth. This church is a four-generation church. The kingdom of God is a four-generation kingdom because typically you don't see five generations living at the same time on earth. But nevertheless, we're to pass this on, pass it on, pass it on. And here's the third reason why it's important for us to, to, to correct this disconnect that we have. This is something that the Lord just showed me. Because there are people, and you might be one of them, who feel dry and empty and unused and unexcited and uninspired in your faith. You follow Jesus, but you feel like joy is not there. You feel like it's not like it was when you first started. Well, see, when we refuse to pass these things on to the next generation, we refuse to receive the joy that God has in store for us. Look at 3 John, verse 4. There's only one chapter in 3 John. But 3 John verse 4, this is John the Apostle who says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. See, and here's one of the things that our self-centered, self-focused culture has turned, into, turned biblical Christianity into. It's about me. 
I understand the meaning behind the word, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. But our individualistic culture has laid hold of that word and made it about, it's only about me and my relationship with Jesus. And that's, that, that's not true. Because when you have a relationship with Jesus, you also have a relationship with his body. And you're enlisted into the passing on to the next generation. And I see a lot of Christians who are missing out on the joy of Christ in their life. Because they think that their greatest joy is knowing Jesus. And that's a great joy. Oh, buddy, that's a great joy. But I can make the case that there's never been a human being on planet Earth who knew Jesus as well as John, the apostle. John was the first male, first, I don't want to say disciple because the women were there and they were disciples, but he was the first of the apostles at Jesus' tomb when he raised from the dead. John was one of the first ones called. John was the only one of the original 12 who did not get martyred for his faith. John was the one in the gospel of John who was leaning up against the chest of Jesus during the Last Supper. John is also the one who wrote the book of Revelation, who was actually caught up to heaven and shown things to pass on to the next generation. John was one of only three people at Jesus' transfiguration. John knew Jesus better than anyone else on planet Earth then and now, but John says his greatest joy isn't in knowing Jesus. His greatest joy is knowing that his children in the faith know Jesus. And there are some of you who are sitting here today, the reason why your spirituality is dry and it's just textbook and you don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit is because you are not investing in the next generation. And some of you are here because you're not being invested in by the next generation. And so this morning, we're going to dive in to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. And I want to show you what I believe God showed me of how to redeem a generation how to redeem a generation. So as you're turning there to Ruth 4, I just want to kind of set it up for you. Ruth is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And the book of Ruth starts off in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, with this phrase. These are the first words. And it's important because it sets the historical context. What's going on in the life of Ruth? It says, in the days when the judges rule. Now that's important. Because the period of the judges was one of the most darkest most darkest, that's poor grammar. One of you teachers that stood up and I prayed for, could you pray for me? Because I'm not the most funniest either. But this was a really bad time in Israel's history. It was actually one of the worst times. They were, they were far from God. They were living wicked, idolatrous, godless lifestyles. And you know what? Because of it, they were being oppressed by all of the nations that they were supposed to not just have authority over, but to bring into a relationship with God. And they're living in a really bad time. And the book of Judges is, is actually best described by two verses. There's a couple more on the one there, but you can see it. These two verses, these two phrases give you the, a snapshot of the book of Judges. Judges 21, 25, and also 17, 6, 18, 1, and 19, 1. This is what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel, i.e., there was no godly leadership. And because of it, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound like a time period that you might be familiar with? No godly leadership. 
and everybody does what they want to do. The other one there is right there in the beginning, the first two chapters of the book of Judges, and it says this, and this is the one that we have to get. This is why they ended up living the way they were living, because there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So they had not read Psalm 78 yet. Actually, it hadn't been written yet, but the reality of it is the psalmist wrote that because he remembered what it was like in the book of Judges. He remembered how bad the economy was. He remembered how dangerous the society society was. He remembered how dark and how lifeless and how joyless living in that time was. And so he said, we're going to tell the next generation so they never walk away from God. We're going to invest in the next generation so that we don't ever have to live in a history like this ever again. And so we see that the book of Ruth is actually taking place in this culture. It's taking place in this time. But here's one of the things that we have to understand about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is not about Ruth or Boaz. It's not about you single ladies transitioning from from crazy cat lady to getting your Boaz. Some of y'all just got real mad at me. (laughs) I keyed, I keyed. But it's not about Ruth getting a husband. It is about God redeeming the lineage of his promised Messiah in a time of godliness and people far from him. It is about a world that is just like ours. Chaos, riots, racial problems, uh, sexual stuff, all of these other things that are going on and God saying, yep, that's the culture that I'm gonna redeem my line out of and I'm gonna choose somebody who's willing and ready to pour into the next generation. I'm gonna choose somebody who's willing to pass these things on to my kids. See, because you want to look at the times right now and say, oh, Jesus is going to come back at any minute. Newsflash, arrogant American, most of the world has lived in the end times since Jesus walked the earth. Sorry, none of our political leaders are the beast. You ever notice how the beast is always the political leader opposite of your political persuasion? Just saying. It's not that not that. But we see that God, in the bleakest time of his people, when they were furthest from him and the culture was rejecting him, God was coordinating a plan to bring forth his promised Messiah. What if every one of us who were older and mature in the faith would stand up and say, I'm going to pour into the next generation because there's a messianic promise that's going to be birthed out of it. What if those of us who were younger would humble ourselves enough to say, you know what, I'm going to let someone else invest in me because there's a messianic promise that's going to be birthed out of my generation. What if, what if we would do that? That's the question that I have for us today. So Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to look at three things, three things that are necessary, that I believe are necessary. There's probably more. These are the three things that God gave me from this text. But three things that are necessary for redeeming a generation. The first one is this, affirmation from the elders. I'm going to explain that in a minute. The second one is this. Someone who is willing to redeem. And the third one is this. 
Someone who is willing to nurture something they didn't birth. Or in other words, something that doesn't belong to them. Each and every one of these are going to pick at and prick your selfish American pampered lifestyle. And thank God that it does. Because our nation needs to have a generation redeemed. So Ruth chapter 4, I'm going to start reading here in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now the gate was where you did business transactions. The gate was kind of like the barbershop. Like if you're not from the hood, just tune out for a minute. But it's like the barbershop where everybody kind of hangs out. Dudes come and sell bootleg DVDs. You know what I'm saying? Everybody talks about everybody else's business. Like if you want to know what's going on in a neighborhood, don't go to, to, to the, the magistrate. Go to the barbershop. Go, go to the stoop in the projects and hang out with some of the mamas. Then you'll know what's going on. So the gate of the city in biblical times were, were where people hung out. They talked about things. They did business. They did transactions. They handled civil government things. And so we see Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And, and the reason why is because the first three chapters of Ruth paint the beautiful picture of how God orchestrates the life of this Moabite widow, a woman who was not recognized in biblical times as a person, who was a Gentile, not of Jews, so she's disqualified. But the first three chapters of Ruth shows how God orchestrates through the life of, of a Gentile woman widow, the triple threat, how God chooses and uses her to be the one to carry on the messianic line. You want to talk about racial reconciliation and, 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 and uh, sexual equality, just go to the Bible. World can't give it to you. And so God orchestrates this whole thing. Boaz is ready to marry Ruth, but because Boaz is a righteous man, Boaz is like, look, there is a redeemer who's in me. You say, well, what's a redeemer? In Israel, there was this uh, plan by God. It was in the laws of God to where if you were a woman and your husband died, because back then you needed a husband to provide for you. You just couldn't go and get a job at Amazon and keep it moving and, you know, sing uh, Beyonce songs. And so she has no options. But God wrote into his law that, look, if, if a woman's husband dies, it's the responsibility of his next closest relative to marry her and provide an heir for his brother if there was no heir, to take care of her. And that person was called a kinsman redeemer. It's a prophetic type of Christ that we see in the Old Testament. And so Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He's related to Ruth's dead husband. And so Boaz is like, look, I want to redeem you, not just because it's my duty, but because I love you. That's a picture of Jesus. Jesus doesn't redeem us just because it's his duty to save us as Savior. He does it because he loves us. And so he says, but I don't want to violate the law, Boaz says. There's a redeemer that's closer than me. So he goes to the city gate, and he sits down, and behold... Anytime you see behold in the Bible, it's kind of like a Holy Spirit, wink, wink, that God's working something out. And behold, all by coincidence, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. 
And Boaz, he, Boaz, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So the first step in redeeming a generation is this, affirmation from the elders. Boaz could have just taken Ruth, because it was a godless time, married her, and did whatever he wanted to do. But Boaz wanted to do things right, because it wasn't just about Boaz getting his rocks off. It was about the next generation. And so Boaz understood that the way to honestly and honorably keep things moving in God's economy is you need to get affirmation from the elders. See, and that door swings both ways. Because as I said before, we've got a bunch of elders who aren't pouring into anybody right now. We've got some that are. But if you're over the age of 35 or 40 and you've been walking with the Lord for more than 10 years, if somebody doesn't instantly come to mind that you have coffee with, lunch with, hang out with on a regular basis for the intentional purposes of pouring into their life to help them become a fully devoted follower of Jesus, then you are not redeeming the next generation. And you probably sit at home and watch the news and rail against God for the state of the world when, forgive me if this hurts, you're the problem. But we also, because the door swings both ways, we also have a group of, of, of self-centered, I'm the best thing since sliced bread, 20 and 30-year-old somethings who don't think they need anybody to tell them anything about their self. Your poop stinks so bad, you should have 10 people telling you how bad it stinks and how to clean it up. Now everybody's offended and hurt. I've done my job. But we need affirmation from the elders. We need a generation of people who may not know how to parse the, 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 the parlances of the hypostatic union of the incarnation of Jesus, but can tell you how to not mess up your life. And we need a group of people looking for affirmation from somebody that isn't on Instagram. I just had to say, it felt good saying it. My God. YouTube is, I, I literally had a dude that I was, I was entrusted with stewarding his, his godly development in a previous life, previous ministry life. So I sat down with him. Dude has all the talents. I mean, the dude's the real deal. And he's crushing it right now. But at this point in time, we sat down because I was like, I need to invest. I have a responsibility to invest in this guy. So we sat down. And I said, okay, man, like, so, so who's, because he was resistant to authority. There's a lot of Christians running around and think authority's bad. That's why you ain't got no authority. You want authority, you come under authority. But he was like, I said, so, so, so right now, man, because I don't want to just say, I'm here, Pastor John, to pour into your life. No, I, I want to make an investment in you that makes you want to get something out of me. Like if, if I don't have anything you want, why would you want anything from me? But... Nevertheless, so who's pouring in your life, bro? Without missing a beat and without batting an eye, you know what he said? Stephen Furtick. I said, oh, you hop on a jet once a week and go down and have coffee with old Steve, do ya? Well, no, man, like I'm watching. See, see, YouTube can't disciple you. It might show you how to fix your lawnmower, but it can't show you how to grow your soul. 
But at the same time, if we don't have some godly men and women get up and find somebody to pour into, they've got nothing else but YouTube to go to. Oh my God, I feel this burning in my soul. I got, I got, I got guys looking for mentors. And it's not just that I, that I don't have time to do it. I do the best that I can to make as much time as I, because it's my responsibility, not just because it's my job. I'd be doing this if I was still working at the methadone clinic I used to work at. But here's the thing. There are 15 men in this room right now that would be better spiritual fathers for those men than I would be. We need affirmation from the elders, and that leads to the second thing. Someone who's willing to redeem. Let's go to verse number three. Then Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land. Because I want you to get this. When you redeemed someone, you would also get their land too. Ha ha. Now who? Yeah, oh, I'm, sign me up. I get some property. Yeah, I'll redeem. Yeah. See, because you redeemed their land. Because none of the land in Israel belonged to the Israelites. It belonged to God. They were stewarding it. And so Boaz, who's very shrewd, look at what he says. He says, she's selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That was uh, Naomi's husband who also died. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here. So, so that's what he got the elders there. So it could be a legal transaction. He says, I wanted to put, call you over and say, hey, uh, why, don't you, why don't you buy this land? And the, in the presence of the elders of my people, he says, if you will redeem it, redeem it. Next verse. But look at what he says. But if you will not, if you will not, Tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And so the nearer redeemer said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field, look how shrewd he is. Boaz is a shrewd businessman, and we got some shrewd businessmen in here that can help some young, entrepreneurial, gifted people become shrewd businessmen. Not unethical, but shrewd. Shrewd is good. Jesus said to be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. The kingdom needs some shrewd businessmen in it, but I digress. So Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So he's saying like, hey, when you get the field, you also get Ruth, and you, you got to sleep with her and give her a baby, who will then in turn inherit that land. Well, look at what the Redeemer says. I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. After we get affirmation from the elders, we need somebody who's willing to redeem. See, because here's the thing, the nearer redeemer was willing to redeem until it might adversely affect his own inheritance. Let me say it to you like this. He was totally cool with getting a piece of land, but the moment that him redeeming the next generation was gonna mess up his fun, he didn't wanna do it. 
Sure, I'd love to pour into the next generation, but Saturdays is me time. I don't want to wake up early to meet with, the, with a young person that needs to grow in the Lord because I like to sleep in. Some of you are like, I knew I shouldn't have gone to church on Labor Day. I just wanted to come and hear how Jesus loves me. Well, you came today to hear how Jesus loves people other than you. See, this nearer redeemer was willing to receive an increase to his own estate, right? The extra piece of land. I'm going to be richer now. Until he realized that that increase would require intimacy and covenant. You know, why, you know why young people don't want to connect with older and older don't want to connect with younger? Because it requires intimacy and covenant. See, and here's the re- reality why we need intimacy and covenant. Because you can't produce, you can't multiply without intimacy. And intimacy without covenant produces bastards and illegitimacy. And that's why I believe, and I'm going to say a strong word, email Pastor Rick. The church in America is a bastardized form of Christianity. It's full of illegitimacy because we've rejected intimacy and covenant. See, this redeemer was totally cool with getting a nice chunk of land and getting his own blessing, but the moment that it might cost him, I don't want nothing to do with it. But here's the funny thing about how the impairing of the estate. Because here's, here's something that the church used to do, and I think we're getting away from it. Every waking moment you draw breath, you and your family need to be at the church by God, and if your kids ain't in order, and your house ain't in order, and you ain't giving, and you ain't serving, you're working 40 hours a week, you should be giving at least God 40 at the church by God. Now we got a generation of kids that don't love Jesus, hate the church. We got a generation of worn out older people who don't want to give nothing no more. Say I'm wrong. See, I'm not talking about impairing your responsibility to disciple your family and care for yourself. I'm saying instead of looking at what giving something to the next generation might cost you, instead of looking at what it might cost you, why don't you start thinking of what it might gain you? Because it doesn't impair my estate, it enhances my estate. Because now my eight-year-old son has 20-something and 30-something-year-old men who are, I'm pouring into that he can look to. My son has Gene Larson's and Pete Gerbach's and Carl Steinmetz's and Tom Rachel's and David S. Sega's and Nate Bynum's and Evan Fisher's and Thomas Hyatt's. He's got those people because I'm willing to pour into them. Because I don't care about me and my estate. I want the next generation to have something that produces legitimacy and covenant with Jesus. I'm going to die. You're going to die. You are going to die. But yea, though I die, I shall... Everything I do is geared toward how I can make the next generation better. I don't care anymore. My wife is pregnant right now because God challenged me. Listen to me, because I was, I was railing against the culture, this godless culture, I can't run her. And God said, and you won't bring godly kids into it? You're selfish. You're thinking about impairing your own estate. I'm gonna leave a godly line in this earth. 
I'm going to leave a godly line in this earth. And I'm going to take a few more than just the ones that share my DNA with me. we got to get over ourselves and our me time and our personal time and all this other time and think about kingdom time. Ephesians 5 talks about redeeming the time because the days are evil. Maybe we redeem the time by redeeming the generation because they will outlive us. Last thing, last thing to redeem generation, I'm going to have Colby come on up, is we need someone to nurture something they didn't birth. This directly connects to worrying about your own inheritance first. Look at Ruth 4, 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, right? The marriage got sealed. Now he's going to seal the deal. She became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you to this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. You want to talk about redeeming sexual equality in the Bible? That's it right there. It's not you becoming feminist. It's about you being used by God. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. See, because when you're willing to redeem a generation, the whole community is involved. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. A son has been born to Naomi. No, that's Ruth's son. That's not Naomi's son. That's Ruth's son. No, but because Naomi was willing to nurture something that wasn't hers, it became hers. Ah! What are you missing out on right now because you won't nurture anything that's outside of your sphere of influence? What, are, what blessing are you missing out on? What joy do you not have because you have no children walking in the truth because you have no spiritual children? And spiritual children, what joy are you missing out on because you're not a spiritual son or daughter? The moment Naomi began to nurture this baby, her soul was nourished. Did you catch it? And I love that word for nurture there or nurse because Naomi was far too old to physically nurse you know what I mean the baby but that word it literally means to establish and to support what part of the next generation is God calling you to help establish and support what part of the next generation is God calling you to step up and say it ain't mine but I'm going to establish it it ain't mine but I'm going to support it because you know what? One thing that I've seen in being middle-aged in my life, that I've seen in my own life, is that the older generation, if they say anything at all to the next generation, all we do is tell them where they're messing up, what they're doing wrong, how they're not this and how they're not that. But what if, 
What if we model what we see from the Father, Son, and Spirit at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, that when Jesus goes through something he didn't have to do, but wanted to do because it fulfilled all righteousness, we see the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What if we started affirming the next generation instead of tearing them down? And I don't mean affirming all of this other nonsense. You know, if you Google the word affirmation, you know the three words most associated with it that pop up? Positive, self, and gender. Because we have a generation looking for affirmation in other places that aren't the Bible because there's no one pouring into their life. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. And so this morning, my questions for you is this. Will you affirm the next generation? Will you come alongside someone, if you're an elder in the faith, will you come alongside someone and say, man, you're crushing it. Man, I love what God is doing in your life. Will you help to cultivate the gifting that's in them instead of trying to make them a carbon copy of you? The last thing I want my kids to be is like me. And that's my biological kids. I want them to be better than me. And God wired them a certain way. And I want to cultivate that in them. But it's affirmation from the word of God, not from the word of the world. Nothing outside of God's word affirms me. And if it's not in God's word, it's not affirmation. Will you affirm the next generation? And those of you of the next generation, Will you get over yourself and run to find somebody to affirm you? You know what this is? It's a baton. Relay races. That's about all the running I can do in my life right now. This. It's a baton. 2 Timothy 2.2 is a relay race. See, and while we make it all about us, the only thing that starts and finishes the race is the baton. You die. See, in the relay race was an Olympic game because back then they couldn't just text, hey, the enemy's moving here. Couldn't send an email. They got the fastest people, people anointed and appointed to do it. And they would put the message in a cylinder and they would say, run with this message. And that person would run as far and as fast as he could. And then he would pass it on to someone else because he's tired. And that person would take it. They'd run it and they'd get it to the next person until the message got to where it needed to be. The message is the gospel. The race is about the baton, not about you. It's about the gospel. You want to know one of the funniest things about this? Is that it don't matter how fast you are individually, how good you are as a Christian individually, the race is not about you. It's about this. And one of the most perfect examples of this, and I'll, I'll leave you with this, is the, the women's four by 100 meter relay races. For three Olympics, that's 12 years. For three Olympics, the best and most fastest female human beings on planet earth were unable to get gold. Not because they weren't fast, not because they weren't good, but they had problems with this. See, because in a relay race, there's a 20-meter section, and that's called the, the handoff zone. 
And so the first person starts and they run and then they get to the handoff zone and there's somebody that's waiting. They're not looking at the person behind them. They're looking at what's ahead of them, but they're ready to receive what should come into their hand at the right time and they start to go and then they get it and then they run. In 2000, we had a sloppy exchange. One year, they had someone, Marion Marion uh, Jones, fastest woman on earth at the time, who was so tired from running her leg, and the person she was supposed to hand off to was so eager to get out ahead that they couldn't exchange the baton. We got generations right now, we got older generations who are so tired from running. We got a younger generation that's just too eager to get out. And it's not about either one of you, it's about the baton. One time they failed because they held on the baton too long. There are churches all across America dying right now because you had a bunch of blue hairs that held on to the baton too long because they didn't want jeans in the sanctuary. I'm glad I don't have to be in that conversation with Jesus in the day. Can you picture it? Um, So you let a whole generation rot, die, and go to hell because you didn't want jeans in a sanctuary that wasn't any more holier than your living room? because they watched an R-rated movie? It's about the baton. It's about faithful men and women passing it on to faithful men and women who are ready to receive it because here's the other side of it. You know what it is? There's gonna be a bunch of young people if we don't shift the, the, the flip the script real quick, there's gonna be a bunch of people having a conversation with Jesus and he's like, so you let the kingdom go because you didn't like the color of the baton? The baton didn't pay you enough? Oh, the baton cut in to your charcuterie board in wine time? Pastor Tom's going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion. A baton that's been passed down from the night when Jesus was betrayed. It's funny. For all the people that don't like the next generation because they don't do it the way we did it. This ain't how Jesus did it. But it's still here. Jesus is still glorified. Imagine that. Did you know that God could be glorified through rock and roll music and rap? The devil's music? No, the devil owns nothing. God owns everything and allows us to steward it. If the devil owns anything, it ain't because God gave it to him. It's because we didn't steward it. So Pastor Tom's going to come up, and I'm going to pass the baton to him. But in all honesty, Pastor Tom's been running this race longer than me. And as much as I want to pour into the next generation, I I want to put myself in a position where the next generation can feel comfortable passing it on to me. See, the funny thing... But younger generation, get me. I'm sorry for going long, but this is important. You have to be running before you get the baton. Some of y'all are waiting. Start running. 
start running and see what batons God starts putting in your hand. Because you know what? The elders didn't just appoint me as campus pastor here. That did happen. But men like Pastor Tom, women like Roy Ann Gerback and Cheryl Romanic, they allowed me to be entrusted with the baton of this place that started 40 years ago. And that is what I live for. So Pastor Tom, thank you for faithfully serving Jesus in your generation. Fun thing. They said the same thing about David, and David faithfully served the Lord in his own generation. You know what the next verse is there in Acts 13? And he died. I don't want you to die. But my hope is this, that when you look at me and other young men in this room, that when you do die, you'll rest well. Because you knew that you not only ran well, but you passed the baton onto people who are ready to receive it. Thank you. And all of you, thank you so much. God bless.